It has been a great week to be able to be here. You're all a great, attentive group, and I appreciate that. It's always uh, fun to be able to teach to people who are so absorbent and receptive to the Word of God. Well, we've been talking about how to be equipped. And you might be wondering, well, do you ever really feel completely equipped, like you've actually arrived? Well, when I think about my own experience, I went the very traditional route of becoming a pastor. I went to four years of Bible college. I went right into three years of seminary. And uh, I also, when I was at college, I did the Ariba program, which is an 11-month missionary apprenticeship in Peru. And so I got equipped through all those different things. I also uh, was very faithful in my local church during Bible college. And so I, I, I think that that was one of the most important things that really did help me and be prepared for, for ministry. But right after Bible college, I became the part-time youth pastor at the church that I was attending, and I felt like right away I was just pushed off into the deep end. And I can remember the very first time that I had to lead communion, and all of a sudden I just, my mind went completely blank when you're standing up there. You've seen this happen every month, your entire life, and then all of a sudden you're in charge, and I couldn't remember which comes first, the bread or the juice, or the juice or the bread. Do I pray? He prays? I don't know what's, what's happening. This is kind of a, not, this is off topic a little bit. I remember one time I was doing the communion, and right before I was going to put the lid on the, on the bread, I dropped my cracker, and I accidentally stepped on it, and I was like, oh, I'm going to have to, and so I had to make a big show out of that. So you're never really fully equipped, you know, I, I was equipped, you know, I, I had been equipped. I learned from the best of the best uh, for in, all, in all areas of Bible and theology and homiletics and all of those things, but the truth is that in Bible college and seminary, they didn't hold my hand and walk through every single scenario. Really, I, I, most scenarios, the real hard things you know, the, the, my professors never really helped me with how to walk through those things. But what they did do was really help me to know my Bible. And so therefore, I am fully equipped for whatever comes my way in life and ministry. I don't have all the answers, but I have the tools that I need. God has given us everything required for life and godliness. Let's say that again together, but replacing us with me, all right? God has given me everything required for life and godliness. So don't forget that when you go home, when you feel completely inadequate, when you feel like you've been pushed off the deep end, you can say that because it's pulled right out of 2 Peter 1.3. God has given me everything required for life and godliness. So you may not have all the skills or all the know-how in getting through every single challenge that's going to come your way, but as God's blood-bought children, you do have the tools for getting through what you're going through. I want to draw your attention one more time back to that situation that you wrote on your, in your box on Monday. You have everything that will be required of you in facing that challenge. And you're equipped because it doesn't come through self-reliance. It all comes through God's divine power. So whatever you're facing today or six months from today or five years or ten years, you will have everything that you need because God's word really is enough. 
God's process of sanctification really is enough. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, really is sufficient. He is everything that you need. Don't look for the the main source of our eternal life and spiritual growth in any other place. And today, we're going to talk about God's program, the church. It really is enough. Each of these things is really essential to your spiritual life, but I believe that that God uses the church to help connect all of these things to your life. So today we're talking about God's program, the church. For as long as I can remember, I've had the privilege of being part of a church. Not counting the ones when my, my parents went to a couple churches before when I was like real little, like preschool. But if I count the ones that I remember, I've been part of seven different churches. Some were for a really long time. Some were for really short periods of time. Some of those churches were growing consistently, and other churches were shrinking consistently. Some of them were, or two of them were when I lived in Peru, and so they were in a different language and a different culture. And in all of these things, no matter all the different ways that they're the same and they're the different, I learned that it's always, uh, what's best for the church is that we are together. Life is better together with other Christians. A healthy church is going to make it their goal to intertwine their lives together and and to be faithful to gather together because life and Christianity are hard enough and, and God never intended you and me to do these things alone. You've probably seen the illustration, the picture that goes around Facebook sometimes. It shows like a zebra that's being chased by a lioness or something. And, and it's, it's the, the picture that as a, as, a, as a wild animal, safety is not in being by yourself, but safety is in numbers and staying in the pack. When a zebra is removed from its pack, it is vulnerable. And it's the very same thing that happens with us as Christians. We are safer together in numbers because our enemy is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he wants to try to single you out and set you apart as being alone and you're an easier target. Well, we have this unique privilege to be part of God's program, the church, which is the body of his son, Jesus Christ. I'm not gonna give you any big formal uh, definition of a church But I will say that the church is a living, breathing organism made up of all believers from the day of Pentecost through the rapture. So it's a great big period of time that we're coming up close to 2,000 years of the church. And this is what's called the universal church. Every believer, anyone that has placed their faith or trust in Christ from any time period at any place on time or any place on earth is part of the universal church. But what we're really talking about, what we're focusing on is the local church, those small pockets of believers that God has placed everywhere where the universal church takes shape and where we are connected. This is where God's grace really is poured out. It's where people who are in need of change are helping other people in need of change. This is an essential element to your spiritual growth and to mine. God brings us into relationship with the other three essential tools to help us get through what we're going through. You get to know Jesus Christ better by being part of his body. 
We're exposed to the ministry of the word of God in the local church. We're encouraged to continue in our pursuit of spiritual growth in the church. The church is vital to our spiritual growth. We have to remain committed to the sufficiency of scripture and Christ and his process, but we have to hold firm to the sufficiency of the church. God wants to use the church in our lives because we really are better together. And the truth is that we really need each other. Would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10? This is like the passage of scripture that pastors love to go to talk about the church. And there's a reason, because it's a really good one. It just, it really clearly lays out not just the truth, go to church, but it tells us why you should go to church and how important you are to the church. I love this passage. It's short, it's simple, it's easy to understand. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, it says, let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, we need each other because we need to be watchful. That's the exhortation in verse 24. It says, let us consider one another or really let us watch out for each other. Being part of a local body of believers ensures that there is always another person to watch your back. In fact, there'll be many people who are able to watch your back. And the purpose of this, it says in verse 24, is to stir up or to promote or stimulate or even the word provoke. I live with a two-year-old, a six-year-old, and an eight-year-old. So there is a lot of provoking going on. But that's not the kind of provoking we're talking about. This can be in a positive sense where we're stirring each other up to what? To love and good works. So as a church member, it's your job not just to make sure that you are loving others and loving God and doing good works, but that you're helping other people love God and love others and do good works. That's why it's so important because we all know that left to our own that we're not going to want to love other people. We're not going to want to love God. We're not going to want to do good things. We want to isolate ourselves and and watch out for ourselves. We need other people to prod us along, to stir us up, to provoke us. We also need to be together. So the original readers of Hebrews were Jews, hence the name Hebrews. And they were really struggling with seeing, uh, or really believing if the church was legitimate. They'd grown up going to the temple or to the synagogue, and now that they had placed their faith and trust in Christ, they had to leave that behind, and that would have been very difficult. Temple worship was entirely different than body worship or worship in the church, worship with the body of Christ. For a Jew, when you went to the temple, it was a very individualistic type of thing. You went to go make atonement for your sins. You had to make sure your sins were covered. You didn't go there primarily for fellowship or for other things, but it was to take care of your sin. But of course, gathering as the body, body worship, is completely service-oriented. 
Yes, we go to church to worship God, but there's a whole other element to it, and it's about serving other people, stirring them up to love and to good works. Temple worship was about gaining atonement and holiness before God through sacrifice. Gathering as a church is all about delighting and reminding one another of our finished redemption in Christ. That's why we have baptism, which pictures our redemption. That's why we have communion, which in a very real way we get to taste and smell and experience and remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So when you gather as a church, you're reminded that you're not alone. I say that a lot as we open up our services at First Baptist in Monroe, is that we're here to remind ourselves that you're not alone in the Christian walk, that we need each other, and to remind ourselves of our position in Christ. And so the writer here in Hebrews says, don't forsake your, your, the gathering together. And that word forsake is really strong. That's the same word that Jesus used when he was hanging on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God had turned his back on his son because of all the sin that he had on his shoulders at that time. But it's also the same word that God promises when he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Christ was forsaken for us so we would never be forsaken. And so we dare not turn our back on God and on his people and forsake the assembling together. All right, think with me about all the images in the New Testament that talk about about the church. What is the church compared to in the New Testament? What's that? A body, a building. A bride. Oh, that's a good one. I didn't have that one written down. That's an important one. Good. I don't know why I'm the one teaching this then. (laughs) Do you, can you think of any others? Family. A family. An army. An army. What's that? Pillar. A pillar. Yeah. Those are all really good. There's also sheep, kind of, maybe not so much the church, but we as Christians are sheep. Christ is our shepherd. All of those things really are there to help picture many different things coming together as one. But again, if you separate the, the many into be individualistic little pockets, the, it doesn't make any sense. Think of uh, the re- reason why we're a body is because it's assembled and it works and it functions together, but pluck out an eye, throw it outside into the parking lot or the gravel out there, and it's not something beautiful to look at. It's dangerous and it's dead and it's gross. Think of, of a family. A family unit together, it's a beautiful thing, but when it's divided and split up or when you've got a sibling over here that no one talks to, that person doesn't feel empowered and strengthened. They're left on the outside as the estranged family. Think of this building. You know, if you just rip, rip it apart and scatter it all over the place, we don't say, oh, isn't that a beautiful chapel? No, you see wood and you see shingles and you see nails. It's all these different separate things. It's not stronger when it's apart. It's stronger when it's together. And the sheep, when, the, when one sheep goes away, the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes for the one because that sheep is in danger. So the idea that you can be a growing Christian and, and just say, oh, I'm just better off or just as good to go out and to meditate in the woods or to go and just stand on the seashore and just worship God, that that is just as good as going to church. That is rubbish. 
Yes, you can worship God in those things, and that is beautiful personal experiences, but God has called you to more than that. To to believe that is self-absorbed, it's insubmissive, and it's rejecting God's plan for believers, which is to connect them to other believers. We really are better together. I read about a story when I was studying for all this about two students a ways back that, that were going to the Chicago Kent College of Law. And the highest ranking student is always recognized. And one year, that was a man named Mr. Overton. He received this honor, but when he did so, he insisted that he should only get half the credit. He said that his best friend, and I might butcher this name, his friend's name is Mr. Kasprzak. He said, this man, Mr. K, I'll call him, deserves half the credit. Why? Because Overton was blind. And he had been led not just onto the platform to give his speech, but all during his education, he'd been, he had to hold onto his friend, Mr. K, as they wandered all around campus. However, this was a very interdependent relationship because Mr. K had no arms. So that means that Overton would carry the books and Mr. Uh, K would read the books. So you had the armless who, was, who needed someone to help him leading the blind, and he could help as well. They both had weaknesses, but they both had strengths. And after their graduation, they planned to study law or, or practice law together. I think that's a beautiful image to show us that no Christian is complete on their own. We need each other. So what does a healthy church look like? Go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. I wish that we had time just to completely just examine this passage and just kind of let it fall off the bones in our hands. I I took uh, weeks to be able to to preach this with my church. Or if you want a really good study, uh, Dean Taylor has written a book that's called The Thriving Church, which is just like 13 chapters of Ephesians 4, and it's awesome, okay? But we're going to look at Ephesians 4 here just really quickly. In the verses 1 through 6, we're going to see that God wants us to belong to a healthy church and diligently protect the unity. So being part of a healthy church means that you're going to protect the unity. Verses 1 through 6, it says, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling You have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of the spirit with the peace that binds us. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Obviously, Paul there is emphasizing unity. He says one a lot, but he's emphasizing both relationships and good doctrine. If you don't have good doctrine, then your church really can't stand very strong. You need to be able to know what you believe and you need to be unified in what you believe with other people. That's why we have statements of faith and that's why we we see and, and really emphasize that. But at the same time, a church can't stand without human relationships. Both have to be healthy for any church to thrive. God wants us to belong to a healthy church and fulfill our Christ-given responsibilities. 
This is verses 7 to 12. It says, Now the grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Messiah's gift. For it says, When he ascended on high, he took prisoners into captivity. He gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is the same as the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the training of the saints in the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. So Jesus has the authority to give gifts because he has descended to the earth. He descended to the earth, he came, he accomplished his task, and then he ascended back to heaven victorious. And he did so like a king, like a king who would take all of all of everything that he's pillaged, and then he would just pour it out onto his people and give to it other people freely. And that's what Jesus did. When he returned to heaven as the victorious king, he distributed the spoil. He distributed the gifts. So Jesus personally gives gifts to the church so that he might fill all things and bring his body, his church, to maturity and to be healthy. Now, right at the center of this entire passage, we still have more to read, but verse 12, I hope you perked up when you read it. Mine says, for the training of the saints, but many Bibles will say, for the equipping of the saints. It's a a key word, of course, in our study, that, that God has given people, gifted people to the church to help the church to be strong and healthy, to be fully equipped, fully trained to do the work of ministry. Without faithfully gathering with your church, you cannot be adequately equipped. You're leaving behind an all-important tool. And I think when you leave this tool behind, then you're really limiting your access to Christ and to his word and to your process of sanctification. God uses it to pull it all together. And then in uh, verses 13 to 16, we see that God wants us to belong to a healthy church and mature towards Christ-likeness. Starting in verse 13, it says, until, so we're we're, uh, trained for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for the building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. So here this connection really is a a connection with Christ, but also our connection with one another. The image here is like stones that are so perfectly cut together that when they're placed on top of each other, there's no space between them. Or it's like taking single pieces of of yarn and and weaving them together to make a beautiful uh, afghan or whatever it is that you might knit together. This is the body of Christ, many parts making up the whole. And this connection here is so close that it's really, I think, could be like this cycle of interdependence. 
Because there is the aspect where you're coming and you're contributing and you're pouring into other people and you're needed. But at the same time, you need other people to be pouring into you so you receive all the blessings of what people are doing for you so that you can turn around and you can contribute again and on and on and on. It's just this self-sustaining organism that goes on forever. You can't function without the proper working of each part. And it's in this way that the body's able to build itself up and it's all in this environment of love. So in a way, this is the armless leading the blind. People in need of help and growth and transformation, helping other people in need of help and growth and transformation because we're all dependent on ourselves. You don't have to look out for number one because you should have a whole other group of people looking out for you and you're part of looking out for all the other people. We also see that as a church, we, we can be reminded that saved people serve people. We're still in Ephesians. Let's look back at chapter 2. Really familiar verses, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. But what these verses show us is that once you've been saved by grace from the penalty of sin and the penalty of hell, you're saved to good works, which means that it is part of your DNA as a Christian to serve other people. For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast, for we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time, so that we should walk in them. So when you gather as a church, God has a purpose for you being there. He has a purpose for you contributing to the needs of other people. You come to church every single week with the burdens of your past week on your shoulders, but you also have the burdens of the week to come. But do you ever stop to think that you're not the only person in the universe? That everybody else that comes to church has the same heavy weights on their shoulders. They might look different. They've all written different things in their boxes at the beginning of this week, but we all have stuff that we can fill our boxes with. So we can so easily come to church and, and just be blinded and only thinking about what can I get out of church when I come. But a gracious brother or sister gathers with their church, eyes wide open, and sensitive to the needs of others. So you go to church not just thinking of yourself, but thinking of all the other people who are gathering around you. So in this way, you're both a giver of good works, but you're also a receiver, because you all have the personal responsibility to stir one another up to love and good works. But it's also important that you are on the receiving end and that you accept the, 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 the provoking from other people. If you think of a sponge and a bucket, neither of these things are, do any good unless they are first filled if you're going to wash something. So first, a sponge and a bucket have to be filled but however, if the sponge or the bucket only fill and fill and fill and never pour out, well then, they also become useless. So to become filled, so you have to come to church 
to be filled. But you also want to ensure that you're being filled throughout the week so that when you come to church, you can be poured out for other people and at the same time allowing yourself to be refilled and then to be able to pour out throughout the week and be filled throughout the week. And it's just on and on and on where we're taking in and we're putting out. We're receiving and we're contributing. When I was growing up, my, uh, I grew up in northern Minnesota, God's country with all the beautiful lakes. And just like almost everybody else, we had a cabin that we would go to. It was kind of unique, though, because my family were co-owners of this cabin with my dad's siblings and all of his cousins. So you imagine, can imagine it gets a little complicated with eight owners of one uh, piece of property. But it was such a fun way to grow up around cousins and extended cousins and all this extended family. And when you came together, everybody had a part to play. To make the thing run smoothly, everybody from the youngest kids to the oldest grandparents had to contribute in some way. But I remember one time, I had a cousin that didn't come very often as she got older. And so she finally came one, one weekend and it was so exciting. And someone said something like, would you set the table or help cook supper or something like that? And she said, no, I don't have to because I'm a guest. And it, it, we still, to this day, we talk about this and scratch our head like, hello, we're all guests here, but we're also all contributing. This is our home away from home. So no matter how long you haven't been here, you're not a guest. You don't, you're never a guest in your own home. Every person who gathers in the church has a role to play. If you lazily underperform and insist that everybody else do things for you, you're treating yourself like you're always a guest at the church, and the church can't function properly. Likewise, you can also selfishly overperform and always act like, I've got this. I don't need you. I don't need your help. I can do this on my own. When you do that, you're robbing the opportunity for someone to serve you. In the book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, the author, her name is Rosaria Butterfield, and she has an incredible testimony. I wish we could talk all about that, but that is beside the point. You should read some of her books, but one of the best ones she's written is called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and she describes what it means to be part of a church. She says, but he, God, did not leave us there, little isolated agents of grace, running our own random acts of kindness campaign. No, he gave us his bride, the church, his church, to which we who believe are called to make a covenant of membership, to become a family, to be both set apart from and missionally placed in the world, to take care in a daily way of our brothers and sisters in Christ, to receive instruction and rebuke when needed, to support the pastor and elders in church discipline, to act like a visible family of God, and to draw others who do not yet know the pricey love of God into our homes, families, and churches. It's such a, a great way to picture the beauty of the church in all that it does. Doing life together can be messy, but it's absolutely necessary. I need you, and you need me. We are all people in need of change and growth and transformation, helping people in need of growth and help and transformation. So we need to view all of the relationships in our churches as relationships for change. 
the little nuts and bolts in our life that God uses to work on us and to, to strengthen us. But why? Why is this so important? Because if you're like me, I'd rather just stay by myself. I'm a very introverted person. I'm perfectly fine with being alone. I don't feel like I need anybody. I'll just listen to the podcast or read the book. And doesn't that do the same thing? But no, we have to fight against that. Because most of us, are, we, we all need to understand that we need other people to speak into our lives. Because the person you're listening to on the podcast or watching on Facebook Live can't see you and cannot speak into your life and help you personally. So why? Why do we need this? Well, we need these relationships for change because we're blind. While a person who is physically blind, they know that they're blind and they learn how to be able to thrive in their world of darkness. But the problem with spiritually blind people is that they never even know often that they are blind. They feel like no one else in the world knows them better than themselves. And this is spiritual blindness. But we need Christians in our life who can point out our blindness. Here, we're going to just flip to a couple different passages during, in these last couple minutes together. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, which tells us of this importance of why we need other Christians in our life who can point out our blindness. Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13. It says, watch out, brothers, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. That means that all of us are quite possibly just one day away from hardening our heart in sin's deception and walking away from Christ and his church. We need each other because we're blind. We also need these relationships because we're sinners. We're going to be in Matthew 18, if you want to turn there. As Christians, it's, you know, it's easy for us to believe, well, that person should know better. That person should know better that adultery is dangerous, or that pornography is dangerous, or that getting uh, tangled up in drugs and alcohol, and that is dangerous, or whatever it might be, that that is dangerous. But as we've already said, none of us is, is above falling into any kind of sin. As we just saw, all of us can be just one day away from hardening our hearts. We're capable of fall, failing and being hardened and that's why Jesus has set up this important process to protect the individual and to protect the church. And it's what's normally called the process of church discipline. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two more with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he pays no attention to them, tell the church. But if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector. This isn't the only place in Scripture that talks about this. 1 Corinthians 5 also addresses this same type of idea of how you start by confronting a believer in sin 
one-on-one, but if he refuses, if he refuses to repent, then you bring in two or three. And if he refuses to listen to even them, then you bring it to the church. And if he won't listen to them, then you put him out of the church. Because as we said, it's not a sign of falling into dangerous sin is not a sign that you aren't a Christian. But it is if you are unrepentant, if you refuse to turn away from your sin, then that is a very good indicator that you may not be a Christian. And non-Christians have no place within the body of Christ. So if this process here reaches the final stage, it is by far the most difficult part of church life. But it isn't set up to humiliate people or just to make a spectacle of them. It's to seek to restore a sinning brother or sister. But really, the most ultimate goal of church discipline is protecting church purity. So if you go to a brother, and if at any time during that process that he repents of his sin, he experiences the good news of the the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he can change, and he can put off that old and put on the new, well, then you have protected the purity of the church. He's restored, and the church is pure. But at the same time, if anywhere during that process you see that that sinner is unrepentant and they have walked away from the church and you remove them, you vote to remove them from the church, well, then you've still accomplished your goal and the church is pure. And so I think that's why at at most, yes, we want to seek restoration, but sometimes restoration isn't possible. Sometimes people refuse to be restored. So then you feel like a failure. But if purity is the main goal, well, then you cannot fail. You will succeed every time because either they are restored to the church and the church is pure or they're removed from the church and the church is pure. This is what Jesus set up because we're sinners. But also we need these relationships because we're needy. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. It says, brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so you won't be tempted also. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So the idea here is being overtaken or captured by sin. But it's, it's more like you've slipped and you've fallen and you need someone to come alongside of you to pick you up and to help you out because you're getting swept away with whatever type of sin it is that you're struggling with. It's not so much the idea of, of rebellion, though all sin is rebellion, but you know it's not this hardened, but it's like you're just being swept away and you feel like you just can't do anything but being caught up in these addictive behaviors or just you're an angry person, you can't just overcome it. It just seems to happen. We all know what that feels like. But you need someone to catch you while you fall. But in each of these passages, Hebrews 3 and Matthew 18 and in Galatians 6, did you catch that they always talked about what we need to do to help another? Encourage each other. Go to your brother and rebuke him. Carry one another's burdens. So Christian, what all of this shows us is that you are the resource that God wants to use to connect the weak brother who is struggling under their burden and use you to connect them to the grace and mercy and truth and peace and love and power of God. You are the tool, the resource that God uses. 
God's program to help people take the next step in their spiritual walk is the church. And the church isn't an institution or an organization. It is the people. People in need of change, helping other people in need of change. And that is how we are the resources that God uses. The many people who make up the body of Christ, the members of God's household, helping each other. But the truth is sometimes you might not necessarily be the person who is helping, but the person who needs the help as well. So be willing to humble yourself and to receive that help from other people. The church really is sufficient. I hope that as we've gone through this week and you see all of these things from Jesus to the word to sanctification to the church, that you can say, yes, hey, I have what it takes. We started out the week and said, hey, help, I don't have what it takes, but we've already debunked that and shown us and seen from scripture that you have everything you need for life and godliness. So you can say, I have what it takes. So let's just tie this all together. First, remember that you're not enough. The world has so much to offer, but what they offer is never going to be sufficient to sustain you and to satisfy you. You can't ask an idol to do what only Jesus can do. Remember, God did not spare his own son to solve your greatest need, so why would God withhold anything from you? Won't he grant us everything? Second, let's remember that there's so many voices out there that are vying for our attention. They want to give us the solution with their philosophy or their theology or whatever it is that they're trying to sell you. But let's not forget that we have a book, a book that has everything in it that we need, that tells us how to, that what's right and what's wrong, how to get right, how to stay right. It tells us about God. It tells us about Jesus. It tells us about God's spirit, about the church and about salvation. Everything that God has wanted to say, he's already said, and he uses that in our lives. Let's also not forget that we're all people in need of help and growth and transformation that it's a process, and we need to trust God's process and remember that it's more like those switchbacks going up the high mountain than the easy ski lift that we all would prefer. So embrace the process. Press into all of the struggles that God is using to draw you to himself. And lastly, don't forget that on your own, you don't have what it takes. You need other Christians. This is God's purpose with the church. He wants to connect you to other believers and to do something in your lives and to do something together. We really are better together. Because if you've ever gone through a period of time where you've been apart from other Christians and when you needed them most, you can testify and say, yes, it is so much harder to do it alone than to do it with other believers. Many, many years ago, there was a Blackfoot Indian chief named Crowfoot. And when the Canadian Pacific Railroad came through Canada, they asked Crowfoot permission. Could they allow their train to go through his territory? And he graciously allowed them to do that. And so as a, as a sign of gratitude to Crowfoot and to all, all the Blackfoot Confederacy, they gave uh, Chief Blackfoot, an, an unlimited pass to use the railway. 
And, and people say that he actually kept that pass around a leather pouch around his neck all the rest of his life. But yet there is no evidence to show that he ever used it. He wore it, but he never used the railroad. The fact that Chief Crowfoot might never have used such an awesome free pass to travel anywhere across the country of Canada seems strange. Why wouldn't he go out and for the first time experience Canada from shore to shore? But Christian, we are exactly the same as as Chief Crowfoot. We don't take advantage of the unlimited resources of God. We may love to speak about them. We'll, We'll buy big fancy signs with God's promises from Hobby Lobby and we put them in our, in our homes or we post them over Facebook and Instagram and we just love to look at them. But how often do we actually act as if they're really true and let them impact our life? God has given us everything required for life and godliness. Let's say that together one more time. God has given me everything required for life and godliness. All of God's promises that we've talked about are sufficient. So believe them. And then, like stepping off uh, the zip line and actually flying through the air because you're trusting the cord and the straps and, the, and everything that you put on and all these, these volunteers that are helping you, you're trusting in all of it. Do the same thing. You can believe what God says is true. God has really fully equipped you for everything and anything that you might face. Jesus is enough. God's word is enough. His process of sanctification is enough. His church really is enough. So take these tools. Don't just leave them on your workbench to make you look impressive and cool. Put them on your, on your tool belt. Access them. Use them. Learn how to use them better. You, you and I don't ever, won't ever feel fully equipped, but you have everything that you need for life and godliness. Let me pray here for you. Father, we have taking in a lot of truth this week from from these lessons and from Pastor David as he's walked us through Proverbs. Father, we all have issues. We're all needy. We all need help and change and transformation, and we long for that. Lord, we've written things in these boxes, and there's so many other boxes we could fill, but Father, we come to you needy and broken and and needing to be cleansed and mended and healed by Jesus Christ. So Father, I pray that these truths would connect in a very real way into each person's life. That as they go home, that they would learn how to access these things and to use them. Help us not to be like that float from the Standard Oil Company that sputtered in the parade, or like Chief uh, Crowfoot, who, who, or Blackfoot, who could have used these things. Lord, I pray that we would not just hold these things as, as uh, something beautiful to look at, but we would access them. Father, help us to honor and glorify you as we bear fruit, as we live lives of faith and repentance. We love you. And we trust you and your process in our lives. And it's in Christ's name we pray all of these things. Amen.